Welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness Webcast Series, held on March 7, 2019. Let's learn a tad about substance, an EU and OECD update. The panelists for the webcast were Doug McConey, a partner in PwC's International Tax Services Group and National Practice Leader, Yoni Guther and Martin Muscant, both principals in the International Tax Services Group, and David Ernick, a principal in PwC's Transfer Pricing Group. This excerpt consists of a discussion of the new OECD substance requirements and some key takeaways from the entire discussion. Have a listen. So what do these low tax jurisdictions have to do to meet the OECD requirements? Well, essentially, you've got to ensure that what they call your core income generating activities for that particular type of activity are actually undertaken by that entity or in that jurisdiction. So we've got a new term there, core income generating activities. People will refer to that as SEGA, I guess. We, we all like acronyms. Um, so ensure core income generating activities in that jurisdiction. That means we've got to define, well, what do we mean when we talk about core income generating activities? I think of these as having a lot of overlap. Again, what we saw in the transfer pricing world with where your DEMPI functions located with respect to intangibles, who's developing, enhancing, maintaining, protecting, and exploiting that intangible. Um, and so for things like if you've got an IP holding company, you've got patents or other technology assets there, core income generating activities are things like actually conducting the R&D there rather than simply exploiting it. If we're talking about uh, marketing intangible, then it's things like actually doing the branding, the marketing, and the distribution, and not just owning that, that, in, that asset. So we've got to have the, those real sort of economic activities taking place in that entity, in that jurisdiction. Um, how do you do that? Well, you've got to have an adequate number of full-time employees. They've got to be full-time. You can't have part-timers, Doug. Um, they've got to be qualified. So if, if they're scientists, they've got to have appropriate degrees. You can't, you can't just stuff people in there to meet these requirements. Um, and, and you've got to have a certain amount of operating, acti- operating expenditures that are commensurate with the intangible development activity, say, that you're actually doing there. So having the right people, um, and, and again, and adequate number of full-time employees, what does that mean? That's the same question we had in, in the transfer pricing world. How, how many DEMPI functions do you need to have there? It's a very subjective, sub- subjective determination. And, and then uh, these jurisdictions also have to have some short, sort of mechanism to ensure compliance. And if the company's doing business there and put it, allocating income there, don't comply with that, well, you've got to have some sort of enforcement mechanism to make sure people play by the rules. So let's see what those are. One of the challenges, and this is a question that I get a lot, and, and some of this over a lot of this overlaps with the multilateral instrument, which was the subject of a, of a different tax readiness webcast. But what substance is required for a holding company, for example, and particularly we see in the financial services space as well as you know other industries, investment vehicles that are become quote unquote holding companies. And the challenge is, is well, if you use the substance, if you use an operating company, is that appropriate substance? Sort of what substance is required for a legal entity to attract dividends? And uh, I'm not sure any of us have the answer to that at this point, but it is certainly a challenge that many taxpayers are having to face. Yeah, and again, I think it goes to the point Yoni made earlier about the multilateral instrument and the principal purpose test. If you've got a holding company there, you're only there for a tax reason, but not you don't have adequate people there. 
you might fail the principal purpose test. So the same sort of question. They do say, Doug, though, that in exceptional circumstances, it could just be doing the strategic decision making. So having someone there who's maybe outsourcing that activity somewhere else, as long as they can monitor and evaluate the outsourced activity. Mm -hmm. But again, it, it's a great point, very subjective as to what do you have to actually do, especially if it's just something, a holding company, where we, from a US perspective, wouldn't expect a lot of substance. Right, and, and then oftentimes, even with third party, you know, with, with when it's not wholly owned joint venture transactions, where you're just picking an investment vehicle, that investment vehicle is a holding company because that's all it does is hold the shares, but it is a very important piece of the overall transaction because it is the vehicle in which we're investing. And it's a real challenge as far as what actual substance needs to be there, and particularly in those, those joint ventures. But let's talk a little bit about enforcement and countermeasures. Sure. Yeah, and so this is interesting, Doug, because I think when you think a lot of these countries that these rules will apply to, a low or even a no tax jurisdiction, they probably don't have a lot of people in their tax department, right? Because if you don't have a corporate income tax, you don't need a bunch of auditors and things like that. But now you're going to have to have some people there because the requirements are, well, countries, low tax jurisdictions have to actually implement these rules. They have to enforce them. How do you do that? Well, you've got to require taxpayers to document the amount of substance that they have in a jurisdiction in their tax return. So say for like Bermuda, they've got a new form, an economic substance declaration that you've got to file with the return now. You've got to list out what those activities are. If you don't do that, these countries, um, for failure to comply with the, the substance requirements, they've got to impose financial penalties. They may also exchange information with other countries saying this company is allocated income here, but they don't actually meet the substance requirements. And one of the penalties might be striking off the register of companies authorized to do business in that jurisdiction. So some significant um, consequences if you don't meet these requirements. And then from the other side, the countermeasures that other countries might take to, to force you to enforce these things would be um, certain defensive measures, things like denying deductions for payments um, to those countries, imposing withholding taxes, or applying the CFC rules to subsidiaries in, in those jurisdictions. So these rules, I, I want to point out, they, they will be, they are being implemented. We'll, we'll talk about some of the countries. Um, they will have force. And I think people need to consider, number one, I want you to be aware of these, that these are out there, effective in a lot of cases as of January 1, 2019. If you can't meet them, you've got to consider, well, do I need to move things to another jurisdiction now where I do have substantial activities or w which is not a low tax jurisdiction subject to these new rules? Yeah, so let's take a spin around some of the jurisdictions that, that we've recently seen some, some proposed guidance. Yes, yeah, so we've got Barbados, Bermuda, and the Cayman here. And, and I won't go into a lot of detail on these, Doug, because they're all pretty similar. They're, they're all trying to implement what the OECD is requiring. Why are they actually implementing, though? Why, why are they doing this, Doug? Um, remember, the OECD itself doesn't have any enforcement power. It's just a standard-setting organization that can't tell anyone what to do. Just to point out, though, that this work on substantial activities is also being undertaken in parallel by the EU, by what I understand, Martin, is their code of conduct yep. group. They've put out similar recommendations to what the OECD did, parallel, not exactly the same, but a great deal of overlap. The code of conduct group actually does have some enforcement power because if countries don't meet their recommendations, they can blacklist them and authorize other countries to take certain countermeasures against them. 
And, and I believe Cayman and Bermuda, they originally appeared on the gray list um, back in 2017 or so. They said they were facilitating offshore structures which attract profits without real economic activity. So this report came out, as I said, Doug, in November. And very quickly, we saw these jurisdictions put out their draft rules in December. And this is when I started getting a lot of client calls about this. Hey, what's going on? What are these new rules? Um, when will they be implemented? And they are implemented effective as of January 1, 2019. They're broadly consistent with what the OECD recommendations have had, um, but effective right now, or I think in cases for one of the country, there is a six months transition period. So just to point out, broadly consistent with each other and with the OECD, what the OECD is recommending. Uh, but this is something that I think uh, the message I would get out, Doug, is, is that there's an urgency to this. To If, if you're impacted, if, if you've got uh, an entity in these jurisdictions, think about right away, am I meeting these requirements? And if not, what do I need to do going forward? Yeah, any comments, Martin, that you're seeing from a EU perspective with respect to particularly as the EU is, is dealing with, with some of these particular jurisdictions, we're getting a lot of questions with respect yeah. to what does it mean to have substance in, in any of these particular countries? Yeah, uh, two comments I want to make, uh, Doug, is first of all, I think the EU Code of Conduct Group is taking this even a step further than the OCD. If you look at, um, and we know that representatives of those jurisdictions went to Europe, went to the OCD, had discussions where the OCD more or less blessed the rules that they proposed. The EU uh, Code of Conduct Group said, oh, we're not that sure yet, we want to take some amendments. And they are really, uh, and I think it was, it was in the news earlier this week, is they're currently still threatening Bermuda, to put Bermuda on the blacklist for not meeting the rules in the right way. Um, so there's a lot of pressure from the AU. They take it, I think, one step, a step deeper. Um, one interesting comment I want to make is, as I alluded to that in my Dutch uh, in the overview for the Netherlands, is the Netherlands was more or less proactive and came up with rules, say, if you do not meet substance rules in an let's say Bermuda Barbados and you make a payment, we can, for instance, levy with holding tax on royalties. But how they defined with uh, substance was, um, you need to have 100,000K payroll, and, but without going into what the, the core substantial activities are. So what will be interesting to see is, does Netherlands have to ad adjust those rules again, or will that be the example set for other countries? Uh, interesting to see what, what, what will happen in Europe. Yeah, and, and because to go back to my comment about the what substance is required yeah. for a holding company as opposed to having to answer that question, it seems that the bright line, for example, that the, the Dutch chose makes that question a lot easier to answer. Okay, if you've got the appropriate amount or if you've got that certain amount of headcount or expenses related to the headcount, then then that's yeah. enough. Because it, depending on what those activities are, it's very difficult to determine what is the appropriate substance. So Yoni, I just view your particular line of or area of expertise in financial services. This is a very difficult situation for you as an advisor and many of your clients, just given the number of investment vehicles that companies want to use to enter into a market, to be able to structure a potential exit out of a potential market, that holding companies, particularly in financial services, but we see this across industries, are not used for tax planning strategies, but are used as an investment vehicle to be able to exit, enter, et cetera. 
cetera, certainly some of the tax implications are going to be relevant for purposes of determining what that appropriate vehicle is. But can you talk a little bit about how these substance requirements are impacting those in the financial services industry? Yeah, no, the point you're making is, a real, is really valid. And it's, it's interesting because, uh, to your point, most in, in, in a lot of uh, uh, financial services structures, the, the, let's say Cayman entities are not used to um, attribute profits to the Cayman entity. The, the taxes are paid either by the investors or by the source country. It's, it's used as an aggregating vehicle or as an investment vehicle. Um, I think very helpful is that um, in, the Cayman, for, in the Cayman Islands implementation, there's actually a financial services carve-out, um, which says that ent entities within an investment fund group are exempt from these rules. But then the question is, how broad is that exemption? Because how far down can you look to, to find a holding company of a portfolio company? Is that then still right. exempt because all the way at the top it's owned, for example, by a private equity fund, yes or no? Um, and then some of the other countries, like Bermuda, do not have that specific carve out, at least not so far as, not, not as of this moment. So uh, in those situations, it's, uh, everybody is looking at this right now. What, what do we need to do to, to meet those requirements? So let's move now to our fourth and final section, which is our, our key takeaways. And this was a very quick and high-level overview of just a tremendous amount of international change that's taking place. And I think particularly for a lot of those, a lot of us that are focused really on the U.S., one of the reasons that we wanted to highlight this was just to remind people that there is so much change and it's so dynamic outside the U.S. as well. But Yoni, maybe I'll turn it over to you for you know some of your initial key takeaways. Yeah, sure. So for, with respect to ATIDE, I think it's very important to realize that a lot of these rules are currently already in play. So they're currently in effect. Um, they're very complex. Um, so if you have significant European operations, you'll have to understand these rules and, and determine potential impact and also um, see like how it relates to U.S. tax reform as well. And you may need to make changes um, in, your, in your structures, in your organization, um, if you want to maintain certain benefits that you've been relying on in the past. Um, so I would strongly recommend people to have to have a look at that. Yeah, triangulating between the ATAD changes, U.S. tax law changes, the multilateral instrument that we've yep. talked about before is is certainly challenging. David, any comments on that from a substance perspective? Sure. Yeah, from substance, Doug. I mean, a, a lot of this is like what we did with country by country reporting. Number one, you've got to monitor these jurisdictions. If you're there, you've got to see if they're implementing these rules. If they are, review the level of activity that you've got there. Are you able to meet the substantial activity requirements consistent with the, the type of activity you're, you're conducting there for, for that regime? If you are, you've got to fill out the, the declarations at the end of the year. You've got to make sure you get the forms in. If not, if you can't demonstrate you've got the right core income generating activities, the right amount of people doing the right things there, got to think about, well, what's my plan going forward? Am I able to put those things in that jurisdiction, or do I need to think about shifting my activities to another jurisdiction where I, I will be able to, to have enough people there to, to meet the substantial activity requirements? Martin, you've been spending a lot of time thinking about DAC 6, which are some of the reporting requirements that the EU is implementing for various type of tax structuring that, that might happen, or just any type of structuring that could somehow impact from be impactful from a tax perspective, as well as the multilateral instrument yep. where we're all trying to get our heads around how these new changes, and particularly the principal purpose test. But what advice do you have for, for those watching um, as far as navigating all of these rules? Yeah, and that's um, the real challenge is how to cope with all the different changes in need, uh, Doc. It is, um, advice. First of all, is I think you need to may start assessing the impact. And 
I know it's so much and there's so many countries changing the rules so you really have to make or set priorities which are the most important drivers for my for my tax profile which countries are important what are the changes so really take your top 20 top 25 of payment flows for MLI or for ATAD um, and then says start assessing top down just most important ones first tax six everything you do will have reporting requirements also there you have to start now, I would say not assessing, but building a governance framework internally, how to work with your advisor, how to work internally to get reporting up to the top level that you know you are in compliance with those rules. Now, uh, I would combine MLI and ATAT in the review. It's the most easy one. They interact quite a lot. And with digital, and that's my third uh, piece of advice for the most, uh, I think this potential scope is so broad that you have to be aware of the various proposals out there and perhaps think about what the potential impact could be if one of those pro proposals will be adopted. Um, just to be ready to talk to the C-suite about it, to talk to your stakeholders about it, uh, but also to determine perhaps, do I want to start a certain lobby or organize ourselves via industry or other groups in Europe or at the OCD level to have a discussion about the, the impact of certain rules. So those are the, my top three takeaways. Yeah, it's great advice. It's really, there's an element of three-dimensional chess that needs yeah. to be played because as you, as taxpayers start to assess what the situations are and what their particular issues are, changing one particular aspect of your structure could create additional issue. We're seeing that a lot with U.S. reform as well between the way deed, yeah. guilty, 163J, everything interacts. And I hope if the one thing that people can take away is how all of this overlaps as well, not just ATAD and the substance requirements, which, which we primarily covered today, but also that could result in filing requirements for DAC 6, which is already applicable, as well as potential implications for the MLI. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please contact the speakers. Their contact information is in the description of this episode. Thank you.